All the Rage with John Bowd on www.tracksfm.org. Good evening, good good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world, listeners. Hello, welcome once again to another episode of All the Rage. And I am delighted to say that uh, finally, part two, the, the part you've been waiting for, the sequel you've all been waiting for, is... Uh, <laughs> It's really insane. You're talking, talking even more about films. Hello, mate. How are you doing? Hey, good, good. <clears throat> Part two of what, of how many? I wonder. Well, that is a question. That is a question. This is a, yeah. a franchise that could go on, and we don't even exactly. have to add a exactly. superhero to it either. No, no cars, no cars in space. <laughs> yeah, no, no cars flipping halfway through the air. No, um, no men with big shields. None of that shit. We don't need any of that. Okay, so we left it, the last interview we did. Uh, I didn't get a chance to talk to you about all of your your previous work and your most recent work. So uh, we'll pick up where we left off, if that's all right. And we'll start with... Yeah. Lovely. We'll start with your film, There Will Be Some Who Do Not Fear Even That Void, which is... Yeah, Who Will Not Fear Even That Void. Who Will Not Fear, I'm sorry. Who Will Not Fear Even That Void. An interesting film from my perspective, one of the ones I responded to most on a pure emotion level. And as a consequence of that, I kind of don't have a lot of obvious questions about it other than I suppose, you know, I really want to kind of explore more about this film. So how did you get started on it? I'm obviously also very taken by the, by the, the voiceover work, which is you, I think. Yes. I mean, yeah, unfortunately it's me because I'm not, well, I'm not a very good presenter slash actor, but also I have, I have a very strange accent. I mean, you probably noticed, right? It's a weird, it's a kind of a mix of English and American and a bit of Arabic. So I'm, I always feel like it doesn't really fit, but, um, but it, it made sense just because it was such a personal film. I wouldn't normally, uh, want to narrate my own films. No, but then the wonder of something that doesn't, that doesn't entirely fit is, is I think very, very fitting, if you'll pardon the term, for discussing such a, a unique subject too. Uh, I mean, my, I appreciate what you're saying there. My kind of response to that would be, well, why shouldn't it be you that reads it? If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think it's true. I mean, it, it did, it did, uh, it, it works because it's so intimate. And also I've seen films where they they appear to be first person, but the narrator is so is someone else, you know, say an actor because they have a better voice or, and, and I, and I think there's always something kind of disappointing about that even if you're not a very good actor presenter or you don't have a very good voice, but the film is really explicitly about you. I think it, there's something much more effective about that, about the voice mm. because even, you know, especially cause I've always thought of, I have this very weird distrust of when you watch an interview with a filmmaker and you don't recognize them in their films. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Like a film filmmaker whose films are very ambiguous and they talk very confidently and assuredly in an interview. You know, they have no questions. And I, and I always think there's a disconnect here. Where's, where is the you in that film, right? Um, and then conversely, I always have a great love for directors where you can absolutely see them in their films when you see a, an interview with them. Someone like David Lynch for me is sort of the ultimate figure of, of that world where yeah you, no question he made those films so so i feel like i don't know i mean look anyone can take anyone and, and have them do a narr- narration for their film 
I just there's something a little disingenuous sometimes when it is a first person documentary or or at least you know pseudo documentary. So maybe yeah. maybe that's maybe that's where I came from in the end. Yeah, I was just thinking about some of the you know kind of old school filmmakers who were quite often dismissed. Somebody like Robert Wise, I think, who was dismissed because he used to jump around genres a lot and and was kind of thought of as having no real identity as a director. I'm not entirely sure I, I agree with that assessment of him i think uh, just as one example you know uh, mm-hmm. and even someone like even an action director like john sturgis you know it's it was like the, the the magnificent seven and the great escape might not seem to have anything obviously in common outside of three word titles and some mm-hmm. of the same actors but but i think that you know that actually he he was someone who had a very it wasn't quite so obvious perhaps but he, he had a stamp on it and yeah i know what you mean by when you have directors you just seem to have sort of no no real stamp of their own identity. You just think, how is this? A, how do you do a job like this for hire? You know, like it means nothing. Mm, yeah, and I and I always compare. I mean, I think I've always been obsessed with um, with language and the use of language and and delivery of and you know speech. And I think because maybe because my mother was a translator, so so I grew up, you know, around and she was incredibly precise and pedantic about choice of words. So I think I just grew up with this real love of and appreciation of of language choice and voice and everything cadence and so it I think of film as a translation exercise you know to take the way I see the world and the way I reflect the world and and therefore the way I talk about the world and turn it into a into film so for me there's always such a direct a direct connection between the way I talk, the way I think before I talk, uh, or sometimes don't think. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not a natural. We'll do that. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, and then the product itself and then the film itself. I mean, the, what you make out of it. What do you, what's that, this film about? It's about, uh, it's about grief. I mean, it's a, it's a very directly a film about loss. The, the story. So you're asking me the story behind it. It was a, it was a very strange. Um, it's a it's a really weird genesis. So we were there was a group of four of us, and we had applied to this artist residency on a sailing ship, and it was we were each going to do specific experiments while we were sailing around the Arctic. So one of us was um, a uh, what is it commercial diver, so she was going to do some underwater stuff. And then one of the team was a drone guy, so he was going to do flight. And then one of the team was a surface thing, uh, some kind of like uh, maybe geography or something. I don't quite remember. This was a long time ago. Okay. Uh, and you'll see why in a second I don't remember who they are. Anyway, because they, one by one, they each dropped out of the project for various reasons. So we got accepted onto this residency. And then one of the team members basically had a disagreement with the person running the residency. So they left one of them, the plans changed one of them. I think they couldn't afford it or something anyway. So it was, so it was left to me. This was 2011 and we were going in October on the ship. And in August, 2011, my mother died. So, so, it, you know, it was almost, I almost didn't go obviously, cause it was quite a, um, quite a depressing experience, but I did go. And then it was pretty clear to me that whatever I did there would have to be 
a response to my mother's death. But I also wanted some kind of relationship to the documentary. Oh, I kind of the artist on the ship because everyone was there on an artist residency. Wait, did you lose me for a second? The, yeah, I was just going to say, mate, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I lost a lot of what you said there. Um, it, okay. Sorry about that. If I, can, if I can just roll you back a sec. I, so everyone dropped out. You were the last person. I understand the, um, the death of, of your mother. Very sad to hear. And so you started making this film. You know, you, would, you still went and you were determined to make something out of it. And it's that point that you went a bit fuzzy. Ah, uh, okay. So, so I just said um, I still wanted something with a relationship to the original idea, which had been a documentary about exploration. And you know, we wanted to examine also the the history of exploration as a form of colonialism. That was maybe our, our kind of political premise. But you know, it became a much more about an exploration of of the self and my own psyche. Uh, and my own psychology, but it also became a very collaborative project because there were, you know, the other people on the ship were all artists. It was a, it was an artist residency, and so I came up with this idea to to do a sort of a mini collaboration with several of these artists, and each of those collaborations would somehow become part of the film. And and I didn't know how, you know, it was just it was all very. And oh, are we frozen again? Yeah, we just, as you were just saying... Okay, I can, yeah, I think we froze again. Yeah, you were saying that you the collaborations with every... It's like individual collaboration with everybody. So, yeah. yeah, so what ended up happening was each... You know, the work with each artist became a kind of a fantasy. And then me and the, the editor, the producer and the composer, we all sort of wrote a fantasy together that connected all of these episodes. So it became a fic, you know, what I, what I would call a semi-fictional documentary or a documentary from the future, because it takes place in the future. It takes place as almost like the, the premise of the whole thing ended up being that the film was this document left over from a, a failed mission. Yeah, it was the... Um... So it was almost like the ship's lock that was left over. Yeah. As, as I said, at the time it was... When I saw it, it did have quite an effect on me, and I wasn't immediately sure why, um, which is not a bad thing. I, f- I find a lot of people I talk to sometimes can feel, if they don't get something, they can feel immediately defensive. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, this, this film, for instance, it's a film. This film is, is talking down to me. This film thinks I'm stupid, and, and I can't understand these, and, it, and, it's, and it's pissing me off. And I don't necessarily feel that way. Um, if films are interesting enough to me, and I don't get them the first time, it's fine for me to spend a bit more time contemplating and maybe rewatching, uh, maybe looking at some YouTube videos of people who are smarter than me and stealing all of the things they say about it and pretending it's mine, that kind of stuff, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. which, which we may come to later on if we get the chance to talk about Andre Tarkovsky. Uh, but, uh, okay. And in a strange way, actually, the film did remind me a little bit of, uh, it reminded me of nostalgia, and a little bit of stalker, not so much. Oh, in, oh. Ov- yeah. Well, not so much in obvious ways, <clears throat> but in the sort of tone, because something is very much, there's something very lost in nostalgia. I think that's pretty obvious from that film, but I also mm. think there's something more lost in stalker and all three characters are kind of looking for it in their own way, looking for something in their own ways. It might even be the same thing. It might not. You'd never really mm. find out. That's interesting. Yeah, you know what? I mean, I'm going to take that as a really big compliment because I hadn't seen, 
I had not seen Nostalgia. I may have seen Stalker. I hadn't seen Nostalgia before making that film. So if it accidentally ended up looking like a Tarkovsky film, I'm more, I'm happy with that. I'll take that. I'll oh take yeah, that. no, it's more more of a um, just kind of reminded me in the same in the same way. And and look, it, it makes perfect sense if you're if you're talking about loss. You know, obviously it's it's gonna it's gonna go to similar similar ways. Let's move on then briefly to Tell Spring Not to Come This Year, which of course is a film following uh, Afghan army soldiers as they patrol the country, coming under fire from Taliban mm-hmm. soldiers and and uh, and supporters and dealing with the impending removal of US support. So what was most striking to me about that documentary is the genuine kind of frontline feeling, um, not a controlled frontline, uh, very much not a controlled frontline. This is mm-hmm. not really just following the daily patrols. You know, they, they and consequently you and any film crew you have with you are coming under fire quite regularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, uh, it's pretty hairy, as we would say. Do you get any sense that these young men really knew what they were signing up for? Or, or did they, were they just looking for a job? I think it's a bit of both, to be honest. I think it depends. I mean, it's, I, you know, it's impossible to say they didn't know what they were getting themselves into in the sense that, Everyone serving had lived through war, you know, for their more or less their entire lives. So, you know, they weren't naive in terms of what the realities of that fighting was going to be like. <clears throat> but, you know, I would say that, and, and this is one of the, re- I mean, it depends how, how much of a political discussion we want to get into, but I think one of the reasons why the Taliban was, was so um, easily able to take over NATO mission was over, <clears throat> because there was a... Um, you know, very much an American-led project of building the army in the image of of the American army, or at least the kind of philosophical heart of the American army being, an, you know, an exercise in nationalism and the sort of philosophy of national service and the philosophy of violence in the service of protecting the nation. Uh, but, you know, the army being as an institution, and that was always one of the dreams in terms of the American project anyway, was to unify Afghanistan using the army as an institution. But one of the problems with that is that the entire formula of the Afghan government and the military since the American invasion has felt to a lot of Afghans very foreign, you know. So one of the things that I think was most striking when the Taliban took control again is that you know, a lot of Americans were saying, oh, they're cowards. They just, they just melted away. The army just disappeared. The army didn't stay to fight. But no one was really asking what they were fighting for, because for a lot of Afghans, the state, the nation as it is now, was, um, was the creation of the American invasion. They don't recognize those institutions as Afghan institutions. So they have no incentive to fight. I mean, anyway, the idea that they're cowards is, is just fundamentally racist and insulting when you see what they really had to live with. But, but even, even if they were, I mean, they had nothing, they, there was no reason for them to risk their lives for what looked to them to be a foreign imposed institution, you know, a government that doesn't reflect them, for example, hmm. uh, a structure, a structure of a nation that looks like an American project rather than an Afghan state. So, so in that sense, I don't think they necessarily knew what they were getting themselves in for. You know that they were they were really this sort of cannon fodder for a much larger American project 
both in the invasion and the reconstruction of the country. And so a lot of them ended up just losing faith, and that's losing faith in the project. And that's that's what Sunatullah, for example, the younger guy in the film, uh, really, really expresses, is that he joined with one ideal and very quickly saw that this whole thing was a betrayal of people like him. And a lot of them, you know, it is also a good job. So a lot of them, even if they knew what they were getting themselves into, it's one of the only jobs they could get that's that's pretty good that could secure uh, a decent salary for their families. Exactly. Do you think the the withdrawal of U.S. support really made any great amount of difference? Again, that's a heavily loaded question, and we could you know, probably go on for, answer that for some time. But but I mean, from, from just from a layman's perspective, and I'm from an, as an outsider to all of this. Obviously, I watched it on the TV like everybody else. It seems to me like the Americans never gave much of a shit about this in the first place, as I think you've kind of just actually described in, in a manner of speaking quite well there. So it just seems to me like their withdrawal was not only inevitable, but, but wait, inevitable, it took long enough. But, it, you know, did it, did it really amount to anything? <clears throat> I mean, there's two ways of looking at it. You know, the first is that the Taliban are in power again, as they were before the, the, the invasion in 2001. Right. So, you know, was there progress in that? Obviously not. <laughs> but, but but did it amount to something? I mean, yes, it amounted to the wholesale destruction of of the um, of the entire country. It's not that there was no result. There was there was an overwhelmingly negative result. The number of people died, the number of infrastructure, you know, the the infrastructure destroyed the institutions destroyed. No, that's not to say I'm not, I don't support uh, the Taliban or, or what the Taliban represented, you know, pre-2001. No. But you'd be very hard-pressed to look at any of the so-called progress during the, the NATO occupation and, and to justify it because uh, you don't need to invade a country to build bridges. You don't need to invade a country to dig wells and provide clean water. You know, so any um, any excuse that's premised on the, on those kind of logistical improvements for the country, um, I just find totally unethical and illogical and unacceptable. Beautifully but, put. Yeah, I don't think I could add anything to that. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think in a strange way, I mean, not to undermine the loss that the Afghan people went through, but in a, in the long run, you know, the invasion and the withdrawal may have more effect on the on the US than it does on Afghanistan. You know, insofar as Afghanistan represented, you know, quite literally America's post-September 11 new vision for the world, let's say, or new perspective on international war and diplomacy. It was invaded before Iraq. So, you know, it was really the kind of proto-response to September 11. Yeah. And um, for 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 the U.S., I think it represented an extremely important uh, experiment. No, I don't think they cared about the lives of Afghan people, but they cared about their standing internationally. You know, they cared about their reputation as nation destroyers and nation builders. They cared about projecting an image of toughness across the world. Uh, they cared about projecting an image of response to September 11. Uh, so all of that, you know, which is essentially America's foreign policy, was was at risk in Afghanistan. That was their proving ground. Mm. Um, and so its failure, I think, is not just a tragedy for Afghan people, but also totally undermines 
the point that America was trying to make post September 11. Yeah, worth remembering for listeners, this was the uh, the time. Oh, I'm probably going to mangle the title remembering it now, but the, uh, the the new American century, you know, the program for the new American century, I think they called right. it. Yeah, this was this was one of the testing grounds. They, they then tested some of their further ideas in uh, in New Orleans post Hurricane Katrina and and uh, various other aspects of um, you know a militarized police force helping them to basically degrade the public sphere in the best possible ways at home and abroad to uh, ultimately fuck over every person who didn't have enough money to to make themselves worthy in in their eyes. Um, worth remembering next time you see, you know, Democrats patting George W. Bush on the back and talking about what a uh, good old-fashioned style of Republican. I mean, he is that. I'll give him that. He is an old-fashioned style of Republican. He's a... He's a Brutal, greedy, bloodless, indecent uh, lizard. But yeah, um, <laughs> moving on. Oh no, I just wanted to clarify that that you know I think what our, what our film is trying to do. Of course, there, there there is that that kind of political background to all of it. But what the film was trying to do was really just focus on on the people fighting the war. So it it wasn't hmm. wasn't intended to be a political analysis of the war at all. It was it was, a, it was supposed to be a much more humanist look at the failures of the war, you know, on an individual level. And, and also show the complexity of some of these of the people's perspectives, because, because I think, you know, it would be very easy for me, for example, as an anti-imperialist to say uh, America, should, America should leave immediately, you know, when we were there in 2014 and say the Americans should pull out right now. But there were a lot of people in the Afghan army who said, well, as Jalal al-Din says in the film, Yes, of course, I want my state, my nation to stand on its own feet and I want to be able to defend myself and I don't want my country to be occupied. But America can't leave now because we would be decimated. Now, it doesn't mean to say they support America. It just means the Americans have now put them in an impossible situation and you get to a point where it's better to stay than to leave. If somebody puts them or their their own forces within the center of, of a system, builds it, around them or deconstructs the one that's existing and builds a new one around them, you still don't want them there, but you also recognize the fact that if they were to leave suddenly, um, it's like a deck of cards, it's going to fall down. Yeah, it, the situation would be even worse. And, and you know, they have to live with the consequences. They're, this is not just an intellectual exercise for them. Bang on. Yeah. Great. So, uh, so it's also very frustrating to hear, you know, for example, a lot of analysis from the left about the war saying Americans should leave immediately or Americans or who knows, whatever the analysis was. But, you know, without taking into account also the reality of the situation for Afghans. For sure. Let's move on. A thousand fires. Mm-hmm. Now, I must say, and I'm sorry to say, this is the, the one feature film of yours I haven't managed to see yet. Okay. But, uh, so just a couple of things uh, before we go into full questions on this. I did see the trailer. Mm-hmm. And I would say this is I love how you narrowed in on such a personal story that at the same time is a global story. It's a global story of poverty and survival. It is a global story of, of powers that are beyond you. A little like we've just been talking about with with Tell Spring not to come this year uh, that that instigate themselves either within a directly within a, an existing system or or perhaps superimpose one over your world and you become you know incapable of really maneuvering 
outside of it. I think that's a, that's a convoluted way of me perhaps talking about the economics of, of uh, global capitalism. Mm-hmm, so I yeah. apologise. But um, you also managed to take all of this down to the, the basics of people's everyday life. Mm-hmm. Uh, including a scene with unfolding political events like a military coup, which is seen on a, a small TV in one room in a in a hut, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was a beautiful image. I mean, a, 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 you know, a sad one for what was happening, a tragic one, but a beautiful way of 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 conveying, you know, how how somebody experiences that that situation. Mm-hmm. So, I suppose first question is again, what what sort of led you to this film? I remember seeing an interview when you said you wanted to make a film about oil. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, it, it's similar to uh, to all my documentaries where I I, ha- I start with a very big idea and I try and figure out what what the film is actually going to be about because I don't I'm not interested in making films about ideas. You know, that's some people can make those films very well, but but they're not for me. I want to make films about uh, about people. So the challenge was how do we look at oil on the fringes of mainstream oil? Because also I think the conversation about mainstream oil, you know, we often have an idea of the oil industry, but it's, but it's a concept, you know, it's almost impossible to conceive of what the oil industry actually looks like on the ground. So I wanted to see it kind of in it, you know, in the smallest possible scales and the, the most, the most human scale of oil. And so, um, we did a lot of research, myself and the producers, to, to find somewhere in the world where we could do that. And there were some some options that were great, but they were also they were also war zones. And I had done this film in Afghanistan. I didn't want to go into a war zone again quite yet. And then when I was showing my Afghan film at another festival, somebody I mentioned this idea of the oil film, and they said, "Oh, there's a there's a photo essay in today's newspaper about these hand drilled oil fields in Burma," and they showed me the the images and it just looked, you know, unbelievable. And so that was how we started. We, and I met, I met with a Burmese filmmaker and we both just went around the country looking for people, looking to meet people, to do, you know, to explore, to research, to find someone. And I had taken, you know, the, the, even that void, that Arctic film, it it had a huge influence on me because I just approached it with no frame at all. I just said, let's start making and see what happens. And, um, and, I, and I really love that film. I mean, it's probably the closest emotionally, the, the, the most meaningful film to me. So there's something about that approach that I love. Now, it's, it's, it's hard to finance. That's a real challenge. <laughs> but essentially, you're saying to someone, you know, somewhere in this world, we'll find something really fascinating and beautiful and someone willing to collaborate with us on a story. You know, you just have to trust me. Uh, and that's what we did. And it worked. I, I, I'm very, ha- you know, for me, the, A Thousand Fires is the first, probably the, the film that looks the most like the kind of cinema I want to make. I'm really satisfied with it in that sense. Well, good. I'm glad to hear. I did endeavor to try and find a cinema to see it and also because I wanted to put a bit of money in your pocket. But oh, um, thanks. <laughs> I'm afraid. I mean, even then, I, I don't, I just did a whole UK tour of the film and I just finished doing the budget and it's like, you don't come home with very much, (laughs) even if you sell out cinemas, you know, it's crazy. That's what I was thinking too. Um, Also also in my my never ending, slightly self-absorbed 
manner of, of uh, reflecting upon my own life and age at the moment. I'm like, how did I fucking miss you doing a tour? Because <laughs> normally yeah. I've got normally I've got my finger on the pulse for shit like this, you know. And it's like it's like when a gig shows up in London. Like I didn't know that band were playing. What the fuck is going on? Oh. Band? <laughs> you know, so it's uh, yeah, yeah. But you know why? It's because when you I mean, you're around my age. You, when you were younger, you probably got time out every week and looked through it, and then you knew exactly what was happening. That's what I did. Well, I used to get the emails would come. You know, all of the emails from all of the venues would come to me, and then suddenly I'd gradually drop off of their lists without noticing it, you know. Oh, yeah, but I'm talking about before email. When I was, yes, you know, no, well, of course. Of when course. I was 15, I was just, you had to read... You had to read Time Out or Enemy or whatever, and then you found out what was happening. Well, those are the days when you had to, you know, bunk off your first class on a Friday morning and grab the phone so you could order a gig ticket with your dad's Yes. Credit. Yeah. Oh, my God, I remember. Yeah, Jesus Christ, I remember that. Yeah, that was, that was beautiful. In the school payphone. Hello, hello, yeah. have, you, have you got any tickets? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, desperately on hold for six hours. Oh, God, nightmare. God, my last one was so much more organised than this. I feel quite yeah. bad. I'm presenting a bad image here. No, um, please. Okay. In an interview that I saw you did for this film with the, uh, I think it was uh, somewhere in Germany where you'd uh, presented the film. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, Munich Dogfest. Ah, that was it. Yeah, yeah, it's on YouTube. Uh, you talked about using a song to convey the emotion that you wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was, I was really taken about I loved that there was a great honesty there because I think a lot of folks, especially in documentary filmmaking, would perhaps shy away from the suggestion that they're, I mean, they're obviously doing that by trying to convey an emotion with you. you know, every filmmaker is subjective. No one's, uh, you can be, I mean, I think we discussed objectivity in the last interview that we had. Mm-hmm. Obviously it's potential, potentially available to a degree, but I, I really like the fact that you basically said, yes, I'm trying to make you feel this emotion. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just so tell me a bit about that and, and like the wider scale of, you see that in, in filmmaking. Yeah. I have this conversation a lot. I find it so strange when people say, Oh, I don't like music and films because it's manipulative, you know, and I think, well, what, that's what film is. I don't understand. It's like saying, well, oh, you use color in your film. No, that's, you're being manipulative. That's not fair. You know, it's like move. Oh, I can't use movement. I can't use dialogue because that's manipulative. It's like you, but you're making people feel an emotion. Yeah. That's why, that's why I make films. I find it so bizarre. Now, of course you can have too much music or you can have music yeah. that tries to give you an emotion that's not in the film. You can have music that's used lazily. Okay. But it's, you know, just to say, I don't like music in films. I find such a strange approach. What I was trying to do with that film was um, with, not, I mean, it's not only the mood, it's also the, it's also the, the shape. You know, I make my, I make films <clears throat> in a way that to me is very much like a piece of music. So, so, um, the flow, you know, the, the rise and fall, the push and the pull, the, the point and the counterpoint, you know, a lot of these, uh, techniques are come from music and particularly I've been looking in, in, into Arabic music a lot lately, the, you know, the shape of Arabic music and it's, it's got a very unique structure that's not really unfamiliar to, to European classical music. So I find it fascinating but but no i don't think we should be ashamed of using emotive music especially when the film earns it you know maybe maybe that's what i dislike is when a film doesn't earn it 
<clears throat> but uh, but for me, the whole structure of A Thousand Fires was designed to get us to this feeling at the end of the film. And that feeling is melancholy. I think I've described it as melancholy, but it's also this sense that to save a family, you have to break the family apart, you know? And, and this is a contrast that everyone goes through in their life. It's that when you grow up and you realize that you have to live your own life, you have to leave your family, and you also realize that at some point your parents will die and you'll get old. Now, there's something simultaneously very beautiful and tragic about that. Beautiful because you, you understand autonomy. You understand that you can live your own life. You have freedom. But tragedy because you, you finally also understand death. And, and for parents, now I'm not a parent, so I'm projecting a bit, but I imagine that as a parent gets older and they start to stare death in the face, they also feel proud that they've raised a child and that the child's a good person, right? Mm-hmm. You can't, one can't exist without the other. So that's the element, that's the feeling I wanted to have at the end of the film. And, and I've always said film is not very good at, at the abstract. I think of film as a physical craft, I think, especially documentary, because eventually after all of our theorizing about film, you have to do the thing, right? You have to put someone in front of a camera and film them and then cut it together and make it. I mean, it's very practical, but music is amazing at abstraction. And so, and so I use it as a form of abstraction, but it's always in dialogue with the image. You know, maybe when music doesn't work, it's when it's not in dialogue, when it feels, I guess, same as my, you know, my feelings about interviews with directors, when I don't feel like they made that film, I don't recognize their, the way they talk in the way they make films. Yeah. If the, if the music doesn't recognize the image in your film, sure, there's a problem. But, but if it does, that's to quote Scorsese, that's cinema. When, when, when sound and image works together, you know. Yeah. yeah and Scorsese, it's worth reminding maybe some of our younger listeners, uh, was such a great pioneer of, of, um, using everyday music, using pop hits as part of his, his kind of sound, literal soundtrack across all of his films. Uh, mm-hmm. That's still, you know, exhilarating scene in main streets when they're having a fight in the, in the pool hall and uh song is still playing on the jukebox. You know, I can't remember which song it was, but some pop hit of the sixties is still blasting out uh, while they're throwing cue balls and, and, uh, and, and, you know, and uh, cues at each other. And of course, so many people have ripped that off, you know, since I kind of agree where you're coming from there, actually. I mean, I have very, very strong views about the misuse of music in film, but, mm-hmm. but that's exactly what it is. It's not an argument for saying there were definitely some films and some scenes, in my opinion, for whatever that's worth, that could have done without having music in them. But, but so what, you know, that's, that's just a, a personal aspect of taste, whatever that's worth. Yeah, it doesn't mean it's always going to be used correctly, but I, but I mean, to dismiss it as a technique, I find so bizarre. Yeah. Dialogue can be terrible, but I wouldn't say I don't like films with dialogue. No, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and I mean, there's also, you know, on a deeper level, not that most viewers recognize it, but the song at the end of the film is, uh, is by a Sufi musician called Alim Kazimov, who, who's from Azerbaijan. They have a tradition of Sufism called Mugam. And um, Sufism is about the eternal longing. It's about understanding that the human soul is is connected to uh, the higher power, whoever the higher power is. But 
throughout our lifetime has always been disconnected from the higher power. And Sufism is this kind of recognizing that no matter what we do, we'll never find unity again with the higher power. You know, so it's that quest, but that quest of understanding that it can never be fulfilled. So it's this sort of eternal longing. And that's exactly what the film was about. So it, it even thematically, it fits, made sense to me. And Sufism is about trying to achieve a higher state through the use of art, through the use of music. I mean, at least, you know, various Sufis have different ways of achieving that higher state. But one of them is music. And for me, that means is cinema. So, I, I, you know, my, my ideal is to achieve something like what Alim Kazimov does, that you experience his work and you feel yourself in a higher state. That's, again, that's cinema. That's what we're trying to do. Beautiful. <laughs> Absolutely beautiful. So, and I, I, I'm going to ask this question, although I think it's, I already know the answer. Um, mm-hmm. Pardon me for being a smartass, but do you think uh, filmmaking has an emotional impact on the filmmaker as well as the viewer? And I'm thinking about this in particular to comments that you, you made in the aforementioned interview relating to making A Thousand Fires and uh, feelings towards your own parents. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I'm, I'm a very emotional filmmaker. I'm a very emotional person. And very raw emotionally, but I'm an extremely emotional filmmaker as well. You know, everything in my films, I don't mean this in an egotistical way at all, but everything in my films is, is me, you know, it comes from me and it represents myself and the way I see the world and the way I want to communicate with the world. But also, you know, if you're making a documentary, uh, how can you spend three and a half years of your life, you know, with a beautiful family like Ten Shui and Tuitin in Burma and, and watch their children grow up and watch a baby become a toddler uh, and see their incredible generosity and not feel emotionally connected or moved or changed, you know, <clears throat> seeing parents uh, that love their child, but also fear for his future, you know, uh, see a kid who grows into an adolescent who finally understands that he has the power to make his own decisions in life. You can't. You can't see that and film it and be so intimately involved and not be moved by it. And I also have a very, you know, a very, um, I don't know how to say it. I think film saved my life. I'm not sure I would still be alive if I had never found film as a purpose. Um, so it's not, you know, it's much more than just a form of entertainment or even a form of art for me. So, so I'm extremely influenced and moved emotionally by by all those experiences i I think i was going to ask you do you you feel as filmmaking you're you're also doing something overtly political because i feel throughout a lot of your films there's well let's let's just say a not particularly great view of of colonialism and it's it's aftermath of which so (laughs) many people live for so long uh, but also, you know, you you zero in on the lives of working class people. That, that's how I would characterise mm-hmm. a lot of who you're you're dealing with. Whenever, whether it's you know uh, migrants trying to make their way uh, across uh, the desert to to um, to better economic climates, to to people you know hand digging for oil and and everything in between. So, do, do you think that's yeah. is that that political element too? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. They're all they're all victims of global capitalism and colonialism, the legacy of colonialism. Yeah. And I think, I think it's important if we're talking about political film, making political cinema, that criticizing colonialism is, is the easy part. 
the hard part, I think, in making political cinema is that every step of the process has to be a, a political process. So it's not just that I, that who's, who is the film about, you know, and suddenly I come out and say, Hey, guess what, everyone? Capitalism is really destructive. Uh, and, he, and here's my film. But, uh, but how did I make that film? What was my relationship with the people in the film? You know, if I make a film, an a so-called anti-capitalist film, but I reproduce patterns of exploitation with the people that, that I'm filming, then I've done nothing. You know, I've just, I've just become the very thing I'm trying to criticize. Uh, so you, I think we have to look really closely at every aspect of the, of the process. Where does the money come from? How is the film being shown? Who has access to the film? You know, what kind of language is the film speaking? What's my relationship to the people that I filmed with? For me, every part of that, every, every part of that process is a political act. Yeah. And it's, I suppose, uh, also political as how you get the funding and who doesn't fund it and why. Among sure. other things. <laughs> yeah. 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 Do you feel exile feeds into your work in any way? Yeah, also. Absolutely. I think, I think, um, because I feel like I'm in a state of perpetual exile, you know, I never, I've never, I'm never really, well, I say I'm never really where I belong, but I think I'm also in a state where I don't belong anywhere. So there, there are, there are good things and bad things about that. I don't want to say it's only like, uh, you know, I feel perpetually wandering the earth looking for a home. No, I think I'm in a state, uh, where I, where without that, I can actually fit in almost anywhere. And I, and you know, that makes me quite happy. There are also downsides, but anyway, I think I'm attracted to people in films that maybe have a, have a similar way of seeing themselves in the world. I was going to say, um, if you feel like you belong nowhere in the world, then you belong in London and you're very welcome to be here. That's, <laughs> that's one of the reasons yeah. why I love it. Yeah. And, 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 or you belong anywhere, you know, I mean, yeah. I, um, the family in Burma that we filmed with really accepted me as a member of their family. And they said that, you know, and, and not in a way that you just say something to be polite, that that's not the kind of family they are. Um, and I felt a genuine, genuine love for them. Um, you know, genuine kindness, genuine communication. If you feel like you only belong one place in the world, I think that's quite difficult to achieve. So there's something very freeing about it. It also frees you from nationalism, which which I think is a great a great bonus. Yeah, uh, I was going to say I so wanted to go in that direction, but we haven't got time. <laughs> oh well, yeah, it's true, it's true, it's true, and you know, it's a strange <clears throat> it's a strange position to be in because obviously the the liberation movement in Palestine is a national liberation movement, but um, but fundamentally, I'm not a nationalist. So that you know, that's a necessary stage, but obviously, the ideal is to transcend that eventually. But anyway while we're in that stage, you know, you do feel a sense of, of being lost and of, of trying to find yourself or your place constantly. Then again, that's why I say, I feel like film saved my life because film became the way that I could search for that thing. Yeah. And in, in all of my films, I'm doing that. You know, I think I'm attracted to people making films with people who are looking for something very profoundly feel like they're missing something and they want it. But something that I can latch onto in the protagonists of your films in a way where, and I think we discussed this the last time we met where, you know, where I grew up, the idea of this, uh, this lost utopia of bucolic England, which none of you ever had in the first place, had any interest in was survive five minutes in 
mm. would want to live for five minutes in, but basically everyone there would be white, which is the only reason that you're you're into it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah let's, let's be honest. You know, sometimes, you know, have you got, uh, again, it's kind of an admission here, have you, have you got a particular hatred of that kind of mindset? Yes, I do, because I've put up with it for over 40 years. Sure. And I'm, I openly say that. I'm sick to fucking death of it, and it disgusts me. And it's not about belonging, it's about exclusion. Yeah. Okay, so unfortunately we're rapidly coming to the end of, of our time together, of which I'm already beginning to form interview three, if you're up for it. But, but I suppose coming to the end of that, do you have an era of films or a style that you feel changed cinema? Uh, well, I, I suppose that's another roundabout way of asking, is there, do you have a favourite era of cinema and, and why, I suppose? Ooh, wow. Oh, my God. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a film historian. It's quite hard for me to try and put it into context, but I would say, I don't know if I could say, no, I don't, an era. Well, maybe, might I try this another way? Mm. Is there a year of your life when you can remember seeing just great film after film, you know, one banger after another, when you thought, blimey, this is a good year for cinema? Hmm. That's also, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have very good answers. I mean, I should say, my, his, my memory for dates is also appalling, so I can't even can't even put that into context. But I mean, I don't I don't think I don't know. I feel a bit disingenuous. I mean, for me, I'm I'm very heavily influenced by both the theory and the films of of neorealism. Okay, but but you know that's I approach them intellectually. I didn't I didn't I didn't approach neorealism as a fan. So I'm a fan of it now, but I mean, I came about it by 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 research. So. But the idea, the idea of seeing a form of history, a form of cinema historically, realizing that it no longer has a relationship to your country and your community anymore, and then actively saying, we need a new vocabulary to represent the world as it is, you know, after a really huge fracture like the Second World War. And to find the vocabulary and grammar to do that, to say, okay, it's not about the bourgeois, it's about working people. There are no professional actors, they're real people. Uh, the camera's going to move, you know. I'm going to show blank space instead of cutting every moment. I'm going to leave silence uh, instead of filling every space with dialogue. That idea of turning a political perspective into an, into an art form, I find absolutely beautiful. And working under the circumstances that they were in as well. So... It's a bit strange to say, I mean, I'm massively influenced by, <clears throat> by Italian neorealism, even though my, my films don't really look anything like it. I mean, I'm influenced by the, you know, the philosophy of it. Yeah, but I absolutely agree. I think that that's something that is very, and I, I'm not sure this is exclusive to cinema. It's just, I've been sitting around watching films for large periods of my life, so I'm quite familiar with it. I think that it's very easy to be influenced in, in spirit, for want of a better word, it doesn't necessarily mean you're doing shot for shot. Of, I mean, we don't, we don't all have to be Tarantino. You know, you're not actually throwing a shot up on the screen to go, hey, do you remember this from that film in the 70s? You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, say in the same way that I, that I adore Godard's political radicalism, but, I, you know, my films, they're never, I'm never going to make a film that looks like Godard. I, I just appreciate his, his, his dedication. Um, and, you know, and the other one, I guess, is, is maybe they are that closely related, but Iranian, you know, the Iranian new waves. 
um, but for a similar reason that they were working under very specific political circumstances and conditions and had to invent an entirely new vocabulary of cinema, you know, mm. and it's one that's, that's both creatively really beautiful, but also politically quite radical. And I think that's, that's the ideal for a filmmaker is to be able to say, <clears throat> this is a new way of looking at the world. You know, this is something that hasn't been done before. Which is something all filmmakers and artists in general should aspire to. Yeah, absolutely. And especially, especially, you know, when we talk about, say, a post-colonial world or a decolonial form of cinema, because we also recognize that the majority of at least commercial cinema or well-known cinema or the cinema that dominates culturally, you know, is from Europe and, and, and North America. That's a tradition that I actively want to work against or undermine or innovate on in order to make a cinema that represents me and the way I see the world. I see my mission as very similar. I'm attempting to do something very similar, say for Palestinian cinema, is to come up with a vernacular that represents a, a, a way of seeing the world that is uniquely Palestinian. That is... Oh. So sadly, the place I suppose we have to leave it. I really don't want to, because as is as is always the way, a good ending to a film is often the beginning of another <laughs> film. Yeah. You know, if any of you out there remember the Shawshank Redemption, for instance, it ends with you know two guys meeting again, and and now it's like their life is going to start together now. So it's almost like it's an ending, but it's the beginning. So I so want us to talk about Palestinian cinema, and and I want to talk about. Well, well, all, well, all things related to Palestine, actually. Always want to talk about that on this show. But I guess we'll have to leave it because uh, we are restricted on time. So for this edition of All the Rage, I say once again to you, say thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, it's just such a pleasure to talk to you, man. And um, and I really do. I, I genuinely appreciate that anyone would take the time to do you know this little show that's made in a back bedroom somewhere where I have to move the fucking laptop around to get the best internet connection, <laughs> you know, um, and, and yet you take the time to, 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 to check in with me and, uh, and talk about your stuff, mate. It's, it's a humbling experience. I'm, I, I thank you from the bottom of my heart that you would do. Oh, something. That's my pleasure. Yeah, no, no, it's my pleasure. Honestly. All the rage with John Bowd. On www.tracksfm.org.